0: Talk Radio's Red-Headed Stepchild. Solace Radio. Here we go where no talk radio has gone before. Open your Scriptures this morning. We're going to continue. Part 17. You're thinking this will never end. The book of Revelation. If you're here for the first time, I want to welcome you, but I feel so sorry for you that you've missed the first 16. Hope you don't feel lost. We've actually gotten through the most difficult portions of the book of Revelation. What is coming? And we continue on this morning our study with chapter 17 today. Both chapters 17 and chapter 18 are parenthetic. And that they do not advance the revelation chronologically. They give further supplemental, supplementary information about matters related to in the chronological sections we've been going through. They look at events actually prior to the pouring out of the bold judgments we talked about last time from chapter 16. And now there are some things in these chapters that have been interpreted very differently by Bible scholars and by Bible commentators. Yet the overall message of these chapters, and that's what I'm going to be focusing on, their implications for us personally, seems absolutely clear. And that is what is most important, I believe, in these chapters. Today and next Shabbat, I'm going to be continuing the, I'm actually going to be doing something different. I'm going to be combining the historicist, futurist, and idealist approaches. And those of you who are scratching your head what that is, uh, there are many different ways to interpret the book of Revelation. We're going to take three of those and kind of meld them together to interpret these chapters as to what Babylon represents. Whether a papal system of religion and government or some great apostate religious entity forming under the anti-Messiah in the last days, or a literal city, either a restoration of ancient Babylon, or a revived Rome in a sense, or the anti-God system in the world, whether it be political, cultural, or commercial, as the seducer of the believers of of the Godly Babylon, in these two chapters as we go to them now, could also be said to represent the head of Gentile world power. The prophet Daniel, in his second chapter, saw Babylon as the gold head of an image that represented Gentile world powers. And so the focus of attention in chapter 17 is on the religious system that Adonai identified with Babylon in Scriptures. And the focus next week in chapter 18 will be on the commercial system. He identified with it. Babylon is not just the name of a city in the Middle East. It is also a name that symbolizes the chief characteristics of that city throughout history. In a similar way, the name Hollywood represents both a town, right, and an industry associated with that town. Wall Street and Madison Avenue, again, are actual streets, but they're also standing for the financial And advertising enterprises. And so those who see a literal city of Babylon rebuilt and destroyed will cite Isaiah chapters 13 and 14, Jeremiah chapters 50 and 51 as unfulfilled prophecies of Babylon's destruction. Now I think Babylon definitely represents here the world system at the very least. And in view of how aggressively Iraq was rebuilding the site of Babylon under the late Saddam Hussein, whose efforts were actually cut short in both Gulf Wars of 1991 and 2003, I would not be surprised, my friends, to see a literal destruction of the city during the tribulation. And so Adonai gave the following revelation of the divine destruction of the religious system identified here with Babylon. Let's look at chapter 17, verse 1. Then came one of the angels with the seven bowls, and he said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great whore who is sitting by many waters. The kings of the earth went whoring with her, and the people living on earth have become drunk from the wine of her whoring. You see an invitation here of the angel to Yohanan to John here Babylon is considered the great whore which will finally be judged for the immorality and will be finally judged for the wickedness that have perpetuated that have been perpetuated by her over many centuries she is the personification my friends of spiritual idolatry spiritual fornication and enticed many to godlessness over the centuries and immorality babylon is a symbol that is in view here Rather than the physical city here and appears to be a prostitute. Now expressed another way, Babylon, or the world system, dominates all of humankind. The Bible tells us here, sitting on or ruling over, quote, many waters or peoples, verse 15. And so it is also true, however, that literal Babylon as well stood beside many waters. It was built on a network of canals, Jeremiah 51 tells us. And though false religion seems to be in view here in this chapter, it is probable that this kind of spiritual fornication was the result historically of strictly political alliances. The quote, kings of the earth in these opening verses are world leaders who committed this fornication with Babylon by uniting with the system she symbolizes. Compromise necessitated in this kind of association is totally incompatible with the worship of the one true God. Amen? This actually amounts to spiritual prostitution. This system made all earth dwellers, John writes, drunk. That is, it had a controlling and oppressive influence over them. Now, it's interesting that we look back just even in our lifetimes, really just the past couple of decades, but that the United Nations has sponsored huge religious conferences that attract Buddhists, Muslims, Catholics, Protestants, Hindus, and many other faiths. The apparent goal of this is some sort of world religion embracing concepts from each of these various faiths and many others. We don't like to think about this, but Judaism, no doubt, also was influenced by Babylon. Why? We spent a good deal of time there. It is inevitable. It is inevitable that some elements of Babylonian theology could have snuck into Judaism as well. But let's go on. He carried me, verse 3, off this angel to John in the Spirit to a desert. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast filled with blasphemous names and having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and glittered with gold, precious stones and pearls, and in her hand was a gold cup Filled with the obscene and filthy things produced by her whoring. On her forehead was written a name with a hidden meaning. Babel the Great, Babylon the Great, Mother of Whores and of the Earth's Obscenities. I saw the woman drunk from the blood of God's people, that is from the blood of the people who testify about Yeshua. And on seeing her, I was altogether Astounding. Let's unpack this for a moment. The description of this animal beast. It's the same description that we found of the beast that arose from the sea, or the anti-Messiah, back in chapter 13. Except that it is scarlet here. Scarlet, probably symbolizing luxury and splendor. Clearly the harlot and the beast are not identical. As the whore, the harlot woman here sits in a position actually of control over the beast. Control over the anti-Messiah. And he, the anti-Messiah here, supported her, the the harlot. This indicates that she will have power over the man of sin. And thus, this event must occur during the first part of the tribulation before the anti-Messiah requires everyone to worship Him. Now notice here that this whore, this prostitute, this harlot wore expensive, attractive garments and accessories not usual for a harlot. And John says he was astounded by that. And that made her extremely appealing. But notice it is a counterfeit beauty. It was customary in John's day, Yochanan's day, for Roman prostitutes to wear their names on their headbands. The Bible tells us here her name was a mystery. Namely, something not previously revealed. Or David Stern translates it, a hidden meaning, but now is made clear to us. The harlot represents Babylon as the, quote, mother of whores. Not just one whore by herself but the fountainhead of many other evil religious systems and everything that is anti-Messianic. And so as the beast, as the anti-Messiah portrays the state's power here to coerce religious conformity through violence, so the whore symbolizes the seductive appeal of a worldly economic system driven by the quest of pleasure and affluence, which we're going to look at next Shabbat in chapter 18. Many writers have traced the spiritually apostate system of worship begun way back in Babylon, back to Genesis 11 Babylon, and carried on throughout the history of the body of believers to Roman Catholicism and the modern Christian ecumenical movement. However, the Scripture's description here of Babylonianism encompasses all forms of paganism, including perversions of Orthodox belief and other religions as well. We can look back. History tells us to see how much blood has been shed. Pleasure-addicted societies conspired with power addicted states to silence the testimony of Yeshua's witnesses by putting them to death. We saw that in chapter 13. The Inquisition historically resulted in thousands of Jews, thousands of Christians being tortured and murdered for refusing to bow their knee to Rome. Meanwhile, Lutherans smashed holes through the ice on lakes and shoved Anabaptists under them causing hundreds of others to die as well. The Lutheran rationale was that the Anabaptists might mislead many by their righteous deeds, which the Lutherans felt threatened the doctrine of righteousness on the basis of faith alone. Are you tracking with me this morning? We've got some symbolism here. Verse 7, Then the angel said to me, Why are you astounded? I will tell you the hidden meaning of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that was carrying her. Verse 8, The beast you saw once was, now is not, and will come up from the abyss, but it is on its way to destruction. The people living on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life since the founding of the world will be astounded to see the beast that once was Now is not, but is to appear. This calls for a a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman is sitting. Also, they are seven kings. Five have fallen. One is living now. And the other is yet to come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. Verse 11. The beast which once was and now is not is an eighth king. It comes from the seven and is on its way to destruction. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet begun to rule, but they receive power as kings for one hour along with the beast. They have one mind. And they hand over the power and authority to the beast. They will go to war against the Lamb but the lamb will defeat them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings and those who are called, chosen, and faithful will overcome along with him, overcome along with the lamb. Lot in there. Make your mind spin a little, doesn't it? Let's unpack. The beast here supplied the woman's power. The beast supplied the woman's purpose. The beast that, quote, once was, we might consider the historical persona of Antiochus Epiphanes, now is not, now is not in such an evil form. And as we have already seen, quote, will come up from the abyss as the anti-Messiah. We learned in chapter 13. And so since the beast pretends to be in the position of God, the angel, I think, personally, sarcastically here, is describing him in language that is similar to what we looked at in chapter 1 as we opened this study that described God, the One who is, who was, and who was coming. Now here the angel is referred to, he refers to the anti-Messiah's resuscitation of a formerly dead nation, possibly a Roman nation, Evidently, the resuscitation or the resurrection will happen near the middle of the tribulation. The beast comes up from the abyss. Remember, that is the home of Hasatan, the adversary, Satan, and the hold of his demons. That's where they are, the abyss. When the mortally wounded, once dead nation, Roman nation possibly, miraculously revives the anti-Messiah's resurrection of this nation The Bible tells us here will greatly impress those on the earth. They will conclude that He is a divine Savior. But actually, He will not be a divine Savior. He will be a demonic slaughterer. The angel here prefaced his identification of the beast's seven heads with a statement that understanding this part of the revelation, not for the faint of heart, requires wisdom. Now evidently, because of that statement, many would incorrectly identify these seven heads. Indeed, various writers have suggested a multitude of different interpretations on this. The most popular of these include seven Roman emperors as described, um, personified as the early Roman rulers, such as Nero, Domitian, Hadrian, Diocletian, Vespasian, and Titus in that first century. Some interpreters will feel that these seven heads represent the seven hills of Rome. But John here explains that the seven heads are in verse 10, what? Seven kings. They are the heads of seven empires. They are the personification of seven empires. The angel referred to them as hills, or in your translation, it might say mountains. In the Scripture, a hill or a mountain is sometimes a symbol of what? A symbol of a seat of power like a prominent government or a kingdom. And so the call here by John for special wisdom in verse 9 probably has in view the ability to grasp the double meaning of these mountains, of the hills as individuals and as kingdoms. Are you still with me? Alright, the seven kings are rulers over seven kingdoms. The prominent kingdom in Yochanan's day, John's day in that late first century, is living now. Was certainly the Roman Empire. The five most prominent world powers that preceded Rome that were, were what? Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. The seventh kingdom, John says, was, quote, yet to come and would, quote, remain only a little while is the beast's kingdom. And so by these seven great powers, the harlot is said to be carried. They were each and all of them the lovers, the supporters, and defenders of organized falsehood in spiritual matters. Now, Some current commentators have speculated, I printed this out here, that these seven are represented by the various popes of the recent 100 years. You can take a look at the photo after the service. So interesting how they start with Pope Pius XI in 1922 and they move it all the way through Francis I uh, from 2013. It's interesting speculation. All these kingdoms either have persecuted or will persecute God's people. Evidently, the beast establishes here, John tells us, an eighth empire himself, really the anti himself, with a worldwide government. Again, after he revives a dead nation, possibly a Roman nation, having received supernatural power from Hasatan, from the adversary. Now, we don't necessarily see the United States of America in prophecy in Scriptures, but some have asked, might it be the nation in the revived Roman Empire? As the old Roman Empire had a controlling effect on its world in those days, so does the United States. Culturally, linguistically, politically, and economically and in so many other ways. But even if we cannot identify specifically these details, they send the message that although the dragon, Hasatan, and the beast, the anti-Messiah, their final assault has not yet begun. Their John says their time is short. For Yeshua HaMashiach will destroy the beast and His eighth kingdom, When He returns to the earth. Not just fall to a conquering kingdom like the other major empires did. They fell. No, this eighth kingdom, the Antimaxiom, will be destroyed by the Lamb, by Yeshua HaMashiach. We're now told, look back with me at verse 12, we're now told that the beast's ten horns represent an equal number of kings. Without kingdoms, by the way, when John wrote, which is not yet clear. But what is clear is that they will be allies of the beast, the anti-Messiah, and serve under him in his worldwide government. But how do these ten differ from the seven kings symbolized by the seven heads of the beast that the whore is riding on earlier in the chapter? Well, each of these ten kings or leaders will rule a different kingdom simultaneously not in succession and with one another and with the beast. A lot of this is found as well in Daniel chapter 7. The Bible tells us here these t- seven kings in, in succession here, in, simultaneously rather, will rule for one hour. Not a literal hour, representing a very brief time during the tribulation. The fact that these horns or these kings had not yet received a kingdom in John's days, he's writing this, seems to rule out their identification as Roman emperors of the first century. Titus, Hadrian, etc. Many equate, and I can see you looking at me with that glaze in your eyes, there's a lot of symbolism here. Many equate these ten horns with the ten toes of the image in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, Daniel chapter 2, and the ten horns on the fourth beast that Daniel saw rising up from the sea in his chapter 7. They are confederate with the beast. They work alongside with the beast, verse 13 here, and will ultimately be made to make war with Yeshua, with the Lamb, verse 14, at the battle we looked at a couple of weeks ago coming of Armageddon. Armageddon. The single purpose, my friends, of these end time kingdoms is to rule the world. The ten rulers will submit to the leadership of the anti-Messiah, to his power, to his authority in order to achieve this end. And evidently, the anti-Messiah will have to put three of them down. Why? Because they revolt against him, it says here at the very end of the tribulation, these kings are going to go out, John tells us, and fight against Yeshua. They make war against the Lamb as He's returning to the earth. Now, years ago, the common assumption, many of you know this, have lived long enough and were focused on these things, that these ten kings represented the ten nations of the European Union. One problem. The number of nations in the EU kept growing. We've got 28 now in the European Union. And it could be that these ten may represent all of the earth's kings, deceived and gathered by the dragon and the beast for a momentary, final, feudal insurrection against the Lamb and an assault on His called and chosen and faithful followers. that us. That's a possibility. But another possibility that intrigues me even more is that the ten-nation confederacy will be the nations that are talked about in Psalm chapter 83. Which was also part of the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago when this was written. But they were all nations located in the Middle East. So as time goes on, we will be able to understand these passages not through a glass darkly, but even clearer than we see them now. Let's move on. Chapter, or verse 15. And then he said to me in the vision, the waters that you saw, the nations where the whore is sitting, are peoples, crowds, nations, and languages. As for the ten horns that you saw, and the beast, they will, interesting, hate the whore, bring her to ruin, Leave her naked, eat her flesh, and consume her with fire. For God put it in their hearts to do what will fulfill His purpose. That is, to be of one mind and give their kingdom to the beast until God's words have accomplished their intent. And the woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. The beginning here of the judgment of Babylon verse 15, look at it again, seems to indicate that Babylon the Great is not limited geographically. She is the world of people who live their lives without the true God in their equation. They may be religious, but they are not redeemed. They reject the true Messiah. They follow a false messiah who in reality actually is indwelt and empowered by Hasatan himself. They ride on the back of the beast, astonished at the power and glory of his kingdom, marvel at the counterfeit miracles performed by the false prophet we looked at in chapter 13, who has everybody killed who refused to worship the beast. This seems... A paradox. It seems not to make a whole lot of sense here. The ten horns, the beast, and the harlot, they're all united to each other, contrary to God and His purposes. But now we see this satanic triumvirate, this alliance of harlot, horns, and beast. It starts to dissolve, right? It starts to disintegrate. And military power ravaging the economic system it once supported. Why would the ten horns and why would the beast revolt against the hawk, the harlot? Well, I may not have an answer for you today, but what I do know is what God has said here. That Abonai in the Tanakh often used the wicked to accomplish his purposes. And that when God seeks to protect Israel, He causes even Israel's enemies to fight each other. He's done it. 1967, 1973 war. God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the Bible tells us that God will accomplish His purposes. And so, they've got a problem. They've got division in the adversary kingdom. The beast and his allies, these ten horns, will eventually throw off, it says, this prostitute, harlot Babylon, and thoroughly destroy her. It says they will plunder her wealth. They will expose her corruption. This is religious as well. Utterly consume her. They will eat her flesh. That should ring a bell, right? Dogs ate Jezebel's flesh. They will completely desecrate her, the Bible says here. As the Israelites desecrated, they actually burned the bodies of people who committed detestable, abominable fornication. Leviticus chapter 20 and 21, Joshua chapter 7. The woman here, look at verse 18, quote, is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth as a system Of what we could term apostate religion, which the city of Babylon originated, Tower of Babel, Genesis 10 and 11, and symbolizes the harlot, uh, symbolizes the harlot has reigned over these kings, the harlot has reigned over these leaders of the world, but her destruction is going to take place, my friends, apparently, in the middle of the tribulation, spelling the end of all religious worship, except worship that is directed to the beast, the anti-Messiah. And so for the first half of this tribulation period, she will reign unchallenged. But apparently by the middle, the beast, the anti-Messiah, will see her as a challenge to her own power and her own program. And so with the League of Ten Nations, the anti-Messiah will destroy the harlot, set himself up to be worshipped. Talk about religious freedom issues. We're going to have some issues here. We need to stand up now. Whatever city, whether a literal or figurative city, verse 18 is talking about, the message is that there's going to be coming, my friends, don't get mad at me, a one world government. In the end, ruled by the anti-Messiah. The world's inhabitants, the Bible tells us here, are going to marvel at the anti-Messiah. They're going to worship the anti-Messiah. But at some point, things take a shocking turn. At some point, the Bible tells us they're going to take a drastic turn. The anti-Messiah is going to turn on the very people who have vowed to worship Him as His true nature is revealed. Babylon the Great is the spirit of this world. By the way, what does a prostitute try to do to people? To them, right? Lead them astray by alluring and enticing temptation. Hasatan uses the things of this world to do the same thing. To entice us. To lure us in. To intoxicate us. He can take us on quite a ride. But in the end, He burns you. My friends, Hasatan looks for two things to lure you in, to entice you in, to intoxicate you and me. Two things. Number one, Hasatan looks for an opportune time. An opportune time. Yeshua was tempted when? When He was all alone in the wilderness. When He was super hungry. (laughs) Joseph was tempted at age 17. After he was rejected by his brothers, sold into slavery, lonely, a long way from home, Esau was tempted by, after a hunting trip, when he, again he was physically famished as well, and he ended up selling his birthright for a pot of stew. Hasatan lures us in, entices us, tempts us, he looks for an opportune time. And number two, He looks for an opportune temptation. An opportune temptation. The lust of the flesh is a very powerful temptation. Sexual lust is extremely potent. And many have fallen for these deceptions. But for some, it is not the lust of the flesh that takes them down. It's the lust of the eyes. It's the parable of the seed and the sower. The seed that fell among thorns refers to those who become unfaithful as a result of what? Worries of this life. And the deceitfulness of wealth. It is what Hasatan has always used to take down the greatest servants and prophets of all time. Gehazi. In the book of 2 Kings chapter 5, it's what took down Balaam. It's what took down the rich young ruler. It is what took down Yehudah, Judas, Iscariot. It's what took down Ananias and Sapphira early on in the book of Acts. Rabbi Shaul or Paul wrote to his mentee Timothy this, quote, For the love of money is the root, a root, of all the evils, because of this craving, some people have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves to the heart with many pains. 1 Timothy 6 verse 10. Rounding third base with you this morning, how do we escape the seduction in this passage of the harlot? How do we, how do we escape her? How do we escape Babylon the Great? Number one, we can resist temptation with truth. With truth. Yeshua resisted every single temptation by Hasatan with the Word of God. We resist temptation not only with truth, but with our will. In order to win this battle, we must resist our natural desires. And number three, we must repent. if we have allowed ourselves to be in time or seduced. That's how we escape the seduction of Babylon the Great. This harlot, this prostitute. April, if you come forward as I was meditating on this passage during this week, thinking to myself, how can we escape the seduction? And at the same time, as we head into another Gregorian year, How do you and I obtain victory over things like complacency, over things like, uh, compromise, over things in our lives like distraction? Those seem to be the three biggies. I felt God was directing me to the letter by Shaul to the Philippian believers. Go with me there quickly. Final passages of scripture. Philippians, the third chapter. Paul writes, verse 10, Shaul writes, yes, I gave it all up. As he sung earlier, right? Everything up. To know Him. That is to know the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings as I am being conformed to His death. So that somehow I might arrive at being resurrected from the dead it is not that I have already obtained it or already reached the goal. No, I keep pursuing it in the hope of taking hold of that for which the Messiah Yeshua took hold of me. Brothers, I, for my part, do not think of myself as having yet gotten hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind me, hello, and straining forward toward what lies ahead, I keep pursuing the goal in order to win the prize offered by God's upward calling in the Messiah Yeshua. Therefore, as many of us are as mature, let us keep paying attention to this. And if you are differently minded about anything, God will also reveal this to you. That we may know Him. Paul is challenging us toward an intimate knowing of Him, God, by experience. And the power of His resurrection. Shaul here is challenging us toward a greater koach, a greater power. My friends, we should not ever settle for simply an intellectual messianic Judaism in our lives. Yet we see that Hasatan, Satan, the adversary, has a strategy for keeping us from moving forward in this. What is, what is his strategy? He has a strategy. But it's very simple. It's threefold. Daniel talked about it in one verse. That's how simple the strategy is verse 25, Daniel chapter 7. He will speak words against the most high and here it is the strategy, trying to exhaust the holy ones, that's us, of the most high. His strategy is threefold, to exhaust us, to wear us down as believers, slowly doing that. Imperceptibly wearing us down. Not suddenly. Slowly wearing us down. Slowly exhausting us. He tries to wear down. What does he try to wear down in our lives? Our momentum. The big mo. (laughs) That leaves us indifferent. Apathetic. Being contained. Settling for the status quo. That's part of His strategy. To exhaust us by leaving us in those states. He tries to wear down not only our big mo, the momentum in our life, He tries to wear down, and I've seen it over and over with believers, our consecration. Purity is the key to our power. You want some power? Get holy. Repent. Make shuvah. Go to God. All things have become new when we confess our sin. He's faithful. He's just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Purity is key to our power. And finally, His strategy is to wear us down. He tries to wear us down in terms of our time and keep us distracted. How many of you have experienced that? By being too busy. Saying yes isn't difficult in our life. Saying no is. It's not hard to fill up our calendar. He tries to wear down our momentum. He tries to wear down our consecration. He tries to wear our time down and keep us distracted, my friends. If we follow His ways and the ways of this world, it means what are we doing? We're actually following the God of this world. His name is Lucifer. By the way, he is a liar and he is a deceiver. He looks to take advantage Of our propensity to sin. Stand with me if you would today. He knows our particular weaknesses. It's different for every one of us. For some of us, it might be what we've talked about. It might be the lust of the flesh. For some others, it might be something else like the lust of our eyes. For still others, it might just be life. It might just be the pride of life. Sometimes, God forbid, it's all three. But thank God, there is a way to overcome the adversary. But it will take a few things on our part. What's it going to take? You're not gonna like it. Daily self-denial. Daily bread from God's Word. And the constant reminder that nothing gained in this world is worth losing the rewards that are offered to us. But we've gotta be vigilant. We've gotta be aggressive in the Spirit. We've gotta move forward to the upward call in Messiah. We've not arrived. Paul's not arrived. But we're pressing. In Yeshua, we've got to get aggressive in the Holy Spirit. That means what? Doubling down in prayer, tripling down in prayer. You need to pray in the Holy Spirit. You need to start fasting. Oh, Rabbi, why'd you have to mention that? I don't know, because in my life a fast is always a slow. I don't know why that is. I can't go really for more than a couple days. I'm only a buck sixty-five now. I mean, I lose weight quick when I fast. It's gonna take some of that doubling down in the spirit if you want to see victory. If you want status quo and apathy, go right ahead. That's not what I've bargained for in the kingdom. I'm fifty-one years old. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Yesterday I was like eighteen. I was moving out here to attend San Diego State and now I'm fifty-one. Where did the time go? I'm seeing my days. I want them to count for the kingdom of God. And I trust You do as well. Whether you're 29 or 79, make these days count. We get up every morning. Lord, thank You for the day that You have made. We're to rejoice and be glad in it. Every day that you and I are vertical, Baruch Hashem, praise God. We're guaranteed another day. But we're not guaranteed a day after that. Teach us to number our days. And while it is called today, let's make a count for the kingdom. Amen? Praise God. Mm, 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 mm. To know Him and the power of His resurrection. Aren't you glad to be in His kingdom? Man, when you were out there in the world serving the adversary, you didn't even know it. You were so deceived. You didn't even know you were... Serving Hasatan. You were addicted to drugs or alcohol. And God, many cases here, set you free instantaneously. You began to walk with God. This book began to make sense to you. Even the difficult portions as we're looking at today. Are you up for the work? I am up for the work. I'm up for leading you in work. That deep, level work. I get frustrated, and I know you do too, because sometimes you'll get into your office and you'll get done your email and you'll get done all your correspondence and it's already lunchtime and you've done enough nowhere work. Not the level three work. You've been doing level one and level two work. But not that deep work. Let's not settle for that level one and level two work. Let's settle for the deep work of the Lord. It's a challenge. Because we get distracted and we get busy and life's problems and our dryer just broke. It. And our dog just puked on my pillow, and all the it's true, and it just happened this morning. We get distracted by stuff. I encourage you to pray over your appliances. My gosh, my wife and I have prayed over our washer and dryer. They shouldn't be running, Jeff. I'm sorry, they, they shouldn't be, but they're running. You need to pray over your bodies. Cancer has no place in your body. Rebuke it in the name of Yeshua, for the power of His resurrection. Well, Rabbi, I just didn't see an instantaneous healing. Keep pressing in in prayer and fasting and getting together with other believers. You will see victory. You will see ultimate victory for sure as we go to be with Him. And so, Lord, we thank You and praise You for what You're doing in our midst. You're challenging us with a... Holy, bold challenge. And Lord, we are up for it. Some of us will get batted down, but those rest of us, we're going to come by each other and strengthen those knees and pull them up again. If there are any in this room that have been smacked down even this week, maybe you heard a discouraging word from a doctor. Maybe you heard a discouraging situation in your business. Look up, for your redemption draws near. The doctor may have a word, but he doesn't have the Alpha and the Omega word. Amen? Praise God. We close every Shabbat with the ironic blessing. It is not my prayer, it's God's prayer in the Scriptures of God telling Moses to tell Aaron how to bless the sons and daughters of Israel. and So, I'm going to extend my arms toward you and pray as they did. And then you are released. You will be teaching in the study, the Torah portion class. We have Hebrew tomorrow afternoon. God bless you this week. Yivarecheche Adonai Va'yishmarecha Ya'er Adonai panvelecha v'chunecha Yis <laughs> Adonai panvelecha v'asem lecha Shalom. So may the Lord bless you and keep you this week. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up His countenance above you and grant you shalom. In the name of the Prince of Shalom, peace, Yeshua of Nazareth. All of us corporately as His people would say, Amen. Shabbat shalom, everybody. Shabbat You're listening to Solace Radio, Monte Vista, Colorado. If you like the programming you hear on Solace Radio, please become a partner with us and donate any amount you'd like, and we'd sure appreciate it, and it helps us to reach more and more people around the world with this great message of hope. Thank you for listening to Solace Radio. Now back to our program.